surprise, we have one more episode for you, a final episode, a bonus episode. Uh, We started out saying that we were going to cover the year in rock 1991. We covered 12 albums and we just, uh, we felt like we had too much left to say. There were too many records we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, There's some things that we want to announce about what we're doing next. Uh, We just wanted to add on a little bonus episode here. So um, uh, here we are. Matt, my my esteemed co-host, Matt Wardlaw, here as always. Matt, say hi. Hello, good sir. It is wonderful to see you. Um, I'm I'm a little bit exasperated and angry with you, yet filled with so much love. But I'll explain the (laughs) exasperation and the anger because our guest that's going to join us I was going back and forth with him because I realized that there was one glaring record that we did not discuss this year that came out in 1991, which we will get into in some form in this podcast. But that album is Blow Up by the Smithereens. And it is just, I can't even fathom why that was not on our list. And I was filled with so much rage. I almost canceled this podcast and all of next year as well. But I'm like, I got. We're going to work through this together. So here we are. I, I guess that's a long way of saying it's lovely to see you, sir. I thought you were um, going to say uh, "Into the Great Wide Open" was the one that made you so angry that we didn't cover. Blow up is another it's, one. Yes. Uh, that's up there. That's up there. But yeah, I just I don't know. What I was and I was actually going to wear my Smithereens blow up T-shirt to. But yeah, I just was. I don't even know what made this come to mind. But I was just like sitting there, and I was kind of like starting to get. This was yesterday. I was starting to get in kind of the mode <laughs> of doing this podcast today, and all of a sudden, as I was thinking, like. Understanding what we were going to do today, which is basically just kind of just um, free form. Like, we don't really have any sort of agenda for this. Like, we're really going to just kind of, I'll say, freestyle through our random various thoughts on some albums from 1991. And as I was was thinking about that, something about thinking of that and thinking about records that I would want to talk about, all of a sudden, I was just like, wait, shit, blow up by the smithereens. I'm like, that was 1991, wasn't it? Now, I come up with some pretty crazy shit in my head. So it's like I went to Google to verify these things. I could have just walked over to my CD collection, but that would have been too easy. <laughs> um, and I, there it is blow up 1991. So um, I was like, I can't yeah. wait to talk to, I can't wait to talk to Jeff tomorrow. This is going to be good. <laughs> that was the, uh, the fall of 91. I think that was the, that was the one that capital spent money on. That was the one yeah. time that capital really went to bat in a promotional sense for that band and uh, didn't work out very well, but we'll get into it. Uh, just like last show, you brought a new friend for us to play with. I did. I did. Um, direct from Collins Coffee, 3714 yes. Riverside Drive, Columbus, Ohio. Let me tell you guys why you need to go to this coffee shop if you're ever in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I went there approximately one time to date, and I feel like we would have been back there five or six times more had it not been for this pandemic that we've had going on. Um, but we walk in, and this is a guy after my own heart that has so many rock books that they have extended out of his basement into a bookcase at Collins Coffee, where it's like oh, as you're you know having your coffee, as you're you know eating whatever you're eating there at Collins Coffee. You can like go over to the shelves as I did and just marvel at rock books, both new and old. And I guarantee you, like even a jaded music snob like me, I found 18 things that I wanted to take the next two weeks and just stay in Columbus, Ohio and sit there at Collins (laughs) Coffee and read these books. So that's a long way of saying that we have um, 
Colin Gowell with us. Um, and Colin, um, some folks on the national side of things will know that um, he was and he is in a band called Watershed that um, put out some records in the early part of the 90s, um, including uh, some major label stuff. I think it's incredibly, uh, I had this thought very much like Blow Up in the Smithereens. I had this this thought and, and proved it to be true. It's incredibly relevant that we have Colin on with us to talk about these remaining records of 1991 because Watershed put out what I believe is their first record as Watershed in 1991. And they were really starting to kind of build the story. Um, Joe from Watershed wrote a fantastic book a few years ago uh, that really kind of chronicles the story, the highs and the lows of this band called Hitless Wonder. Hitless Wonder is the name of book of the book, and uh, it's just a absolute fantastic read that will make you want to just get in the van with these guys and take the entire trip all over. If time travel is possible, you'd want to do that. So, but um, Colin Gell, welcome, sir. How you doing? Oh, great. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. And yeah, we get uh, a lot of rock and roll books coming through here. That's part of the perks of a small business. It's my thing. So I'm, you know, just providing some entertainment for everybody, especially if you're a rock and roll fan. So uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun, you know, looking through all those things. And you can kill a lot of time at this coffee shop. Believe me, I kill a lot of time at this coffee shop. <laughs> Dude, 1998, you guys did a tour with Insane Clown Posse. How the hell did that happen? And how the hell did you survive it? We... We done this, you know. We did the epic record stuff, got dropped. Something about not selling enough records, you know how that goes. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we uh, did a Star Vehicle record, and it was supposed to come out some label. It didn't work out, but we put all this work into it. And at that point, the Insane Clown Posse couldn't get anyone to open for him because they were just blowing up on the Great Malenko. So everyone would go on stage, everyone would just boom. All these kids, the Juggalos were young at this point. They would get <laughs> driven to the shows in minivans, right? Yeah. So they weren't dangerous. They were just obnoxious. And they needed an opener because their show was really short and they needed somebody just to cover like eight to eight twenty so they could play like nine to ten because they were starting to do like two and three thousand seat venues and blah blah blah. So we had a mutual sound guy and we just we're all like no other options. Joe's driving a forklift, I'm back working at Subway, you know, we've been dropped, we're in town, we're just so we're like, you know, we'll take the tour, which is better than nothing, right? Uh so it was better than nothing, barely. It was uh it was tough. <laughs> and uh the first night we were in Scranton and we could hear like the crowd like chanting like watershed, like watershed, like I'm like, oh, do they know us? Do we have a we on the radio here? Maybe we were. And then we opened the door up and it's just watershed sucks. Watershed <laughs> sucks. And they can see the what drum the head. So we get on stage and it's just like boo. And we start playing. They kind of stop for a minute. Cause we're, you know, it's, it's, there's been bad bills, but we're literally a rock band and we're like in our power pop, like kind of suits and we're and we're opening for insane clown rappers, right? This is not even like genres, not even close. So once we get to like a chorus and it comes around and they realize these are kind of chorusy, catchy songs, they get really angry and they start throwing stuff at us. <laughs> so every night they would just throw stuff at us. And, you know, you're like, well, are you going to get your feelings hurt by a bunch of kids? And, you know, or are you going to take the gig? And we didn't have any other options at this point. And the guys and the clowns are really cool. They're like, they're like, I can't believe you guys do that. You guys aren't going to quit. Like, eh, nah, we'll do it. You know, so, and the venues were nice. And, you know, it wasn't that long a set. It felt long, you know, because nothing you could do really worked. You know, we would try to do stuff. Ex except for like one night where like two songs in, like some of our gear broke and we just stopped. And, and it's like, they all, I say, like, God, we just play two songs. That goes over great. We just finished. But uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was challenging in that way. But, you know, 
I was a fan of those kind of bands and Kiss. You know, they're waiting to see these guys, and we're the one thing in front of them. So it was a, you know, it was a good experience on that level, I guess. But ultimately, it led to Herb leaving the band. He just didn't want to do it anymore. It was tough. But in a way, it opened up a whole new door where he kind of moved on. We got a different drummer. We kind of pushed us in a new direction. So, you know, things like that happened for a reason. And we would have been, you know, cowards not to try. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was every night. It was it was something. Believe me, they were things were flying. Being be preemptively booed by the uh, I've never heard that. That's wild. Oh, watershed sucks by the whole crowd for you. <laughs> Chanting before you stage. even take the stage. Yeah. That is incredible. And loud, like with enthusiasm, not like a mumble like a few guys in the back. Jesus Christ. Everybody in unison. Yeah. So we're like, oh, I can see why nobody wants this gig. But like like little Steven says, when you're in a band like Watershed that's still going to this day, you know, obviously now we we do other things, but at the time that was what we had done. So you don't have other options. It's like, I'm, I can go wait tables or I can go open for insane clown posse. And we've always really gotten together. We always get along really well. We're one of those bands that really likes. So other than, you know, the shows, we're getting to hang out and we have a sense of humor about it. And, you know, and we liked our record and, you know, we're yeah. like, well, we got to play these songs somewhere. We put all this work into Star Vehicle and eventually it got re-released in a different format and got a little traction down the road. But at the time that was the only, that was all we had. So we took it we're like, we'll do it. So, you know, Good for you. we like to get out and play. So. so what's your best story from Watershed touring with the Smithereens? Oh, man, there's so many. That was the highlight. You know, everyone will say the day I got married or the birth of their son. But let's be honest, touring with the Smithereens is probably the highlight of my life. It was so like, I don't wow. mean that sound that I'm laughing, you know, and of course, you care more about other things. But the fact that we got that tour and our, and our guy, Frank, he got it. And of course, Epic's like, well, don't tour with them. You, you will find a better band than that. And we're thinking, we're smart enough. You're not finding a better. That's never going to happen. So thank God we did it. Um, I mean, I mean, that's just the first night we played with them. We were like in, I think, in DC, and they don't sound check or anything at all. They just go on stage and they warm up by playing like 20 minutes of surf tunes live in front of the <laughs> crowd, and then just go into their set. Like we've never. <laughs> Like, you know, we're rehearsing and we're kind of gung-ho, you know, our album's out. And they would just like, you know, do that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, all the different shows were amazing. I mean, going out in Charleston, South Carolina with Jim Babjack for a night on the town just about ended our lives. And we could not <laughs> hang with Jim. We learned that early on because we're trying to be the opening act, you know, and go out there and do that. And it was like, it was a, I remember the next day, like, wow, that's, we got to watch out for that. Uh, they, you know, they were just, they were just so good every night. Like I never, ever got old, ever, ever got old of like blood and roses ending. And towards the end of the tour, we really got along with them well. And they would have our guys be on the bus with them sometimes or switch around. But I would even go up and take the solo for blood and roses. If Jim wanted a break, like to wow. go, like go to the bathroom. So I remember like some randomly, I remember just Amarillo, Texas. I, I basically got to play the whole song. He just like went, nodded at me in the crowd and said, here, Colin's going to play this. So I got to like play lead guitar, you know, and, you know, granted it's Amarillo. This wasn't happening in LA or New York. <laughs> I gave the guitar uh, in Amarillo. And I mean, how awesome is that? Right. I mean, you're playing, you know, blood and roses with the smithereens and um, the whole thing was just a blast to play with a band that you just, that you just love that much every night. And it was just, uh, like I said, it just, it never got old. It was, it was, it was awesome to watch them play every night. So really just, 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 just loved it. And they were just, they were great guys too. They were so cool. 
We've never had trouble with like bands being mean to us that we've liked. I know that's kind of a common thing. Maybe we've gotten lucky, but yeah. Even like said, the bands like Cheap Trick and Smithereens and stuff. Even the Clown Posse were very. They were all very nice and very cool. And it was. Uh, but the Smithereens, that was just you know, knowing every night you're going to play with those guys is awesome. That's cool. Yeah, I drink Rolling Rock because, or I or I drank Rolling Rock. That was the initial <laughs> beer that I drank because. <laughs> Jim Badjack Drake, and I'm like, if it's cool enough for the smithereens, I'm like, that works for me. I, that's the beer. So that was the first beer I ever tried was Rolling Rock because the smithereens were drinking it. So that's that's a perfect way to start drinking beer. I mean, what what else do you need? So, so it's a good training wheels beer. That's true. You guys played some shows with Cheap Trick as well. Like, what's your best story from uh, from playing with Cheap Trick? You know, the different eras we played with them. We played with them when we were young on Epic Records and. You know, they all, you know, we played Indianapolis, a big outdoor place with BTO on a Sunday night. It was a big festival, BTO, Cheap Trick headline, BTO and us. And this is a Woke Up With a Monster. Yeah, nice. Tour. And then they played Columbus the next night. And we opened for them at the Newport in our hometown. And then after the show, they all came out to the library bar, which was like our little bar hangout. All four of them. And I remember even when Bunny walked in, Tom was couldn't believe that, wow, even Bunny came out. And there was just maybe 30 people in the bar and Cheap Trick just hung out there all night. And we had all the, you know, they were just doing it because they knew we were huge fans. I mean, mm. we used to, I used to go wait by their tour bus and all that nerdy stuff. So to be there opening for them, that was an amazing night and experience to hang out. They're such cool guys. And then most recently, we did other shows through the years. We went down about three years ago and played at Myrtle Beach because that's where Joe Strike from Watershed lives now. Yeah who wrote Hitless Wonder, and we got the opportunity to play with them. And before the show, Rick was like, I want to talk to you guys. And Robin stopped by our dressing room, came upstairs, looking just like Robin Zander in a suit. Like, <laughs> I'm just, like, staring at his face. Like, like that's Ro Robin Zander look, you know, looks amazing. Look at that. You know, it's amazing. And then before the show, Rick was like, hey, we need a moment with these guys because there's all these people backstage. And he started talking to me, and he was like, this is when I had been doing the project. Why isn't Cheap Trick in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yep which is just a band we started. That's the name. Why isn't Cheap Trick in the Rock and Roll Fame? We'd play a free show, a Cheap Trick covers, and then the club would just put that ad out because we felt passionate about this. So Rick was like, so what's up with this band? So I got to tell the band about the project and how it's just good fun. And they got a big kick out of that. And once again, they're just, um, you know, really, really good guys and really, really cool. Well, I want to start working our way towards 1991, but... Um... As we work, I, I want to start with the watershed side of that. But as we work our way towards that, um, I have to tell folks how I came to your music, which um, I believe it was probably Jim Benson, who's a longtime Cleveland radio guy here in Cleveland, um, sure. who introduced me. Um, it was either Jim or Pat or both Jim and Pat around the time that we were doing a radio show here in Cleveland called in. Uh, uh, I literally called I almost said insane clown posse, but we were um, we were doing a radio <laughs> show called Inner Sanctum that was all local music sure. and. Colin had put out this Christmas EP called Still Love Christmas that has this song on it. Um, I, I love the entire EP, number one. like still The title track is a brilliant song, but it has this song on there that I believe, if I'm correct, began in some form as a Watershed song. Like, So it's just an insanely amazing song. AM Boy, where does that song come from, Colin? You know, yeah, it was actually a watershed. There's actually a watershed cassette that had Still Love Christmas, Naga Hyde, and AM Boy on yeah. it. And it never got proper release. So then when things got later, I was like, hey, if no one's going to do anything with these songs, I'd like to do something with them. Uh, AM Boy, 
I mean, I remember writing it. It was just in my family room in Columbus and Crestview, and it just was later at night, and it just came. It just came. Both that and still of Christmas just came really quickly. Uh, you know, I don't know. It just, it was written that way. It stayed that way, and it really has never changed. Um, obviously, there was some romantic heartbreak involved there, but you know, when, when isn't there when you're in your twenties, right? Something's always going on. Uh, but it just always had a thing about it. And uh, we never, you know, I wanted to just do it, do it what I felt like properly. So on the EP, I got to do it and really, you know, because when you're with Watershed, with with Joe and I both writing, we have a lot of songs that maybe don't fit on the Watershed record. And AM Boy is one of those ones that would be kind of confusing. I can't really lobby its way. That's why, why we had the League Bowlers. The League Bowlers yeah. is our side project with Watershed. We started literally as a Georgia Satellites tribute uh-huh. band. That's what we build ourselves at. Excellent. And we played bars. Excellent. But it turned out in Columbus, Ohio, the four guys in the band and like four other guys were the only other huge Satellites fans. <laughs> so we couldn't really book. But we would take our Roots Rock songs that people saw as too podunk. That's what our guy, you know. So we would just funnel those songs separately into League Bowlers. So we had a band for all our Roots Rock, the power pop stuff or the more whatever cheap, tricky stuff is Watershed. And then I would do solo stuff that was maybe like AM Boy. It doesn't really belong on a Watershed record. It's not a League Bowler song. So I kind of siphon that stuff up. And Joe obviously writes, Joe writes books and crazy things like that. I just do solo songs when I can. Uh, so that's basically kind of where we direct the songs. And AM Boy was just one of those tracks. I remember writing it. I remember where I was sitting and it was like, well, maybe this is something. And we just, you know, cut it as a demo and it, we still play it to this day, and I appreciate you, you know, mentioning it because a lot of those songs, you know, they don't get mentioned very often. So it's always coming from fellow music nerds. It means a lot. I appreciate. It's funny. It. I, I was like, kind of like, it just blew me away that that was on a Christmas EP. But that song has a very winter sound to it, so it's like it totally, like I totally get why it's on there. But like you mentioned, the word heartbreak. That song is heartbreaking. Like, like so. That's why, like you know. I don't know if we're going to bum everybody out and stick that song at the end of this podcast, but but it's one of those songs that people need to hear. Like it's it's just a great great tune. Yeah, I mean, and it it kind of you know that you can't really do it. It kind of we still have Christmas this Christmas EPs. It was kind of a bummer to put that EP onto the Colin Gow Superior Best yeah. of, but it just made more sense to jam it, have all those songs together where they'll at least be in one spot online. But that little EP had a little life of its own. Like that song, Cold Weather, you know, Still Have Christmas. It really did have a little, like when you tell anybody you're doing a Christmas record, obviously we, first thing is like, oh my God, you know, no. Like it's going to like, I'm like, no, no, you have to, it's not like that. It's not what you think. It's a, I like felt really like that was a cool little Christmas EP. And there's still some copies around, but I don't think like online, it doesn't really, you can't play it top to bottom. Yeah. But I, I do think for whatever reason, Amboy fit in that slot just perfect. It wasn't like planned out exactly like that. We started working on that record and we were like, what about this song? And it just, it just, it just fit right there. Now, the thing I'll close with that I don't know is um, on that superior compilation that you mentioned, like there's a song on there that really kind of to me speaks, like you can certainly hear this in Watershed, but like some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, like, you know, Tom Petty's Into the Great Wide Open, John Mellencamp, Whenever We Wanted, albums like that, like you can hear the DNA of that in a song like Sad Drive. Like what is that, what does that date to? What, what, where, where was that originally released? Where, where was that from? Well, as luck would have it, that's the song, that's the last song on Twister, which is the Epic Records major. Oh, okay. I just failed and a watershed test. That was a song. 
<laughs> no, it's okay. It's the last song. And like, that's the one in the book. If you read Hitless Wonder, we were doing our big, our big showcase in New York where everyone flew in and like Richard Griffiths flew in on the Concord with Steinman. And we were playing this big, like, you know, it's like a showcasey thing with suits. And a lot of our fans came out there and this is the night, guys. You got to do it. And that's the song. We hadn't released it. We decided to open up with it because I'm like, it was too early to start rocking. And we played Sad Drive. And we just just written it. It's very quiet. It's very, you know, that treatment is very Springsteen in Nebraska. Yeah. Um, and to Jim Steinman's credit, you know, the late, great Jim Steinman, when he was actually around the studio, he liked that song. And he was like, you know, you should do that song and you know, do it last. And because, you know, we weren't signed to do songs like yeah. that. So Sad Drive kind of became a staple of the set. Then when I got to do um, solo stuff later with a different band, I just thought it'd be fun to maybe kind of do a, a more full band fleshed out rock and roll okay. version. Yeah. Cause the album on the version on Twister is very dark, very whatever. And it was at this point, Twister wasn't even available. We didn't even know if it'd ever be hmm. available. So we're playing sad drive all the time and I'm still playing it and nobody can get the damn song. So eventually like, we just need to record it. So it's available. So that was definitely like a more, you know, that's, that's kind of the live version when I play with the bowlers or whatever, it's a little more upbeat, a little more straight ahead. Dan the Torpedoes, Tom Petty kind of vibe. This is what I forget, Jeff. Like, Colin has Jim Steinman stories to boot. So, but to push us into 1991. So, like, let's get into 1991, Colin. Like, Watershed, 1991, first record. Like, what's happening? So that was Carpet Cliff, right? You probably know better than I. I'm not a very good archivist of my own stuff. I... I actually texted Biggie before the show to remind me. We op- I did see we opened for the Screaming Jets in Cleveland that year. Remember? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jets? I saw them at the draft house with Eric Gales. Were they they good? were good. Yeah, I enjoyed them. It was like I thought that we were playing. God, where did we play up there? But uh, we thought it was going to be this huge show. Like, oh, man, we're playing there. And um, and there was like 10 people there. You know? <laughs> uh, I forget what room it was. But like, it they was like they're one of their first American Australian, shows. I think, right? They were, weren't they also on Epic, though? They, uh, we weren't on Epic at that point. We were just trying to figure out like shows, like what we could do. We played with Aldo Nova oh, wow. that year, nice, and that was pretty good because Aldo Nova. We opened with Newport, and like we're sitting there like waiting to go on, and we're just like you know we're twenty two. We're pretty young. We have our van, and we're in full like just driving around, booking all our own shows, van mode. You know, did our first album like uh, full length or whatever CD. Um, you know, it wasn't that great, but you know, we did it, you know, we're trying to do it and we're open for Aldo and over the Newport and the band's doing their sound check, whatever. And they're supposed to be like twirling their hair. And one of the side guys isn't like, I guess, twirling his hair enough. He stops and he just starts <laughs> screaming at this guy. Like, you don't, you don't, we practice hard. We play hard. Get off my stage. If you're not going to work. Like we thought he was kidding. We we're all, we we're like in trauma. Like he's just screaming down this his side guy on stage. And then he also had like lines on stage. Like no one crosses these lines. This is my part of the stage. This was the year yeah. we got to point out. This was the year that Aldo got his big uh, second chance. Blood on the bricks, right? Ring, Kurt- courtesy of John Bon Jovi. Yeah. He yeah. was touring. It was a, was that, that was that maybe it was that tour yeah. or anything. Yeah. As you guys know, back then pre-internet, all these shows were not related, right? You don't have any idea right. of what's right. going on. Like we're playing with Aldo Nova. Right. Like, you know, um, yeah. What's he up to? I hope he plays monkey on my back. You know, it was cool. Yeah, no, John, um, John Bond so we were, had his uh, vanity imprint through it, Mercury at that year. And what was uh, that, Jamco? I, I believe. 
Jamco Records, and I think that the Aldo record was the first one to come out. Aldo and, and Billy Falcon were the two like oh, flagship yeah. artists. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you caught him on so, his Blood on the Bricks tour. He was he must have been very exactly amped yeah. up, you know. He's he can taste it. His comeback yeah. is right around the corner. As want, just as long as people twirl their hair the right way. And another another big thing that happened to us that year too was we was the first time we played with a band called Dash. Oh yeah, Rock. nice. Now they're a band out of New Orleans, and they were like the first band to ever take us on the road. And we used to play. We would play anywhere. So one of the places that would book us was this place called Rockefellers in uh, Columbia, South yeah. Carolina. So we'd play there like once a month. Never mind the fact it's ten and a half hours away from Columbus, right? We don't even care. We're like, we'll drive all the way there. And they thought that was hilarious. Like, you guys come all the way down here just to play. We're like, yeah, you know, it's cool. Uh, so we end up playing with Dash Rip Rock, and that really kind of opens the door. They're like, you know, I wouldn't say satellites. We're already kind of satellites fans anyway. But, you know, that that really kind of got us into like kind of the, you know, the Southern Rock way of thinking and touring the South a lot. And, uh, you know, Dash really had a big impact on us because they were just three piece. You know, they used to back Mojo yeah. Mixon, just Southern Rock and Roll, drew huge crowds everywhere. Uh, Hokey drink a bottle of whiskey every night. I mean, that was a lot of fun. And that definitely had a huge impact on just like, you know, I don't know, just being young guys, just going on the tour and playing all these different small towns. And it was just uh, that was it was cool. That's. That's why, that's why you sure. tour, right? You don't necessarily know where it's going to go, but you end up just meeting and seeing all these people you'd never meet, um, and that, uh, or even like down the road later, meeting Terry Anderson. Yeah, like I'm such nice. a huge fan of Terry Anderson. Terry Anderson. He wrote, you know, I mean, I think he's one of the most brilliant songwriters in American Absolutely. history, yep. and he wrote all that stuff with Dan, you know, and Knocked Up, and you know, Battleship Chains. Battleship you Chains. know, it's, it's two chords. I mean, <laughs> you got me tied down with battleship chains, 50 foot long and a two ton anchor. That shouldn't work. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even rhyme. You know, or I love you, period. Do you love me? Question mark. Please, please. Exclamation point. I want to hold you in parentheses. So great. But like, I, we've always had a, I always think like watershed being in Columbus, we've, we're kind of like in this mid spot where we love like the replacements and cheap trick, but we're just South enough that we love those Southern, like Terry Anderson, kind of J- Dan Baird, southern rock and roll it's kind of the whole it's kind of the whole thing right here um we're kind of pulled on both sides of the mason dixon line although obviously we're definitely more northern power poppers but we we're, we're huge fans of those those bands and being around dash Rip rock kind of opened our eyes so you mentioned world. something that i want to key in on and that is your a and r guy frankie laraca who i believe among other things i think frankie was the drummer for scandal at one point but just a colorful character of a guy rest in peace mm-hmm. he's no longer with us but um he uh, was yep. one of the producers of another 1991 record. Watch this segue, Jeff. Pocket full of kryptonite. Spin, <laughs> spin doctors. So um, did you hear any spin doctor right. stories about that time period from Frankie? Well, yeah. I mean, we were really tightly connected to the spin doctors through no thing of our own. But we had the same manager, Frank Aversa, who actually produced Star Vehicle, who mixed some of Twister, which we didn't pick, he actually produced Two Princes. Yep. Frankie was the guy who signed them. So, like I said, uh, nothing other than they were just kind of, they were already big stars by then. And I think for their second album, maybe we went to their private release party mm. and hung out. Um, you know, not, nothing. I don't think the Spin Doctors, there was too much exciting going on. Although we were privy to when they were planning their big second album, which really was the, not. and look, our, the Watershed's first album, you know, we were young. It wasn't that great. I'm not trying to say that we deserved any kind of massive success or anything like that. 
we did the best we could under those circumstances. But when the Spin Doctor's second album was the biggest tank in the history of rock and yep. roll, it definitely hurt. And I remember talking to managers, our manager, same guy, and they'd be like, oh, you know, we're going to put this song out. We're going to put the album out in the summer. I think it was in June. Don't quote yeah. me on that. But I remember having a conversation thinking, like, oh, yeah, like, well, you know, that's usually a dead time to put out records, right? They're like, oh, it won't matter. These guys are so huge. They're so huge. I'm like, you know, I, I live in Columbus, and it's Ohio State. It's a big college town. And I'm not sure, like, you would think they have the fan base they have. Like, I know they had a big record, but they didn't tour a lot of clubs in the Midwest. They kind of just got really big on yeah. MTV. And I was like, they went with this idea that I think they thought that just the gates of heaven were going to open up for the new Spin Doctors record. And then their first single was Cleopatra's Cat That's what I was going to say. They, they picked a like, terrible first single for that album. No, we were, we were there like when they were filming that video, like in the periphery, because we're working with the same people and we don't say anything. We don't know anything. We're just kids on, you know, doing our album, but we're like, man, that's a $500,000 video. Yeah. Like, <laughs> are you sure? Like, you know what I mean? Are you sure this is going to work? And it didn't work at all. No. You know, it was a disaster. And, it, you know, and, and then, you know, it went from, and I love Frankie. Frankie is like, and I've got some good, I got a, or I got a great Frankie the Rock story, I can tell you, but like, it went from brought to you from the guys that brought you the spin doctors to like watershed brought to you from those losers who brought you the spin doctors. <laughs> like it's instantly, we were like the next thing on the runway coming from that, that group, you know, uh, not that it would have changed anything, but it wasn't helpful, you know, cause within the company, you know how those labels are. Yeah. You're only as good as your last hit. And that was a, that was, that one hurt. Like that made like news how bad it went off a cliff. So uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it took a little wind out of uh, our, our, uh, I, I think it's a shame it though was because a historically terrible pick yeah. for a leadoff single. It was, and there's and yeah, there's absolutely. good songs on that record. Like if they would have gone with "You Let Your Heart Go Too Fast," like that was a good solid yes. single. Yeah, that would have carried story things completely. forward. Yeah, yeah, yep. but yeah, absolutely. They yeah, I agree. You know, they uh, I think they got this mindset, and it happens to bands that they needed to be so different, or they were going to do the Beatles White Album. They only had one record, so just you know, there's nothing wrong. I mean, look at ACDC. I mean, just go with. <laughs> Go with what brought you, you know, and, and I'll even say on the watershed record, we went with, how do you feel? That was the single that Jim Steinman heard. We sent a cassette to somebody in New York city. A, a, someone we knew from high school was dating someone who used to run sound mm. for kiss. All right. This is not the Glenberry yeah, Lee. Nice. I know it, but we were sending out packages. This tape of how do you feel ends up, he passes it off to someone else who passed off to someone else. It ends up with this guy, Charles, who happens to be Jim Steinman's limo driver. And for some reason, this guy, Charles, likes this tape. So after about a week of playing this demo, Jim finally leans up and is like, who is this? It's like, yeah, band Watershed, Don's girlfriends went to high school with these guys. And he was like, man, I love it. I love this song. How do you feel? Like, that's wow. literally how we ended up. And then people come to, came to see us in Columbus, and we actually had a crowd, and we could play a little bit. But that was how we ended up basically with Jim Steinman hearing because his limo driver was playing cassette that got passed down from like three. So other Jeff, people. that's, that's so, kind of my first know. record that I unofficially pushed forward as my 19, my 1991 record to talk about, but uh pocket full of All kryptonite, right. even though it's really a 92 record. I mean, it came out in 91, but yeah. nobody cared. That's a 92 yeah. album. I guess my short, my short comment right. on it really is just that like, you know, I don't. I think that you, like me, have dug pretty deep deep into that record. It's like that record, of course, had two princes and you know, Little Miss can't be wrong. Jimmy Olsen's blues. I mean, which already were three singles deep. So it's like that's nothing to sneeze at. But I think that these days, 
people are probably like, you know, largely they're like two princes. Um, Little Miss can't mm-hmm. be wrong. That's kind of what that band gets pegged as. And I right. can still look back at that pocket full of kryptonite record. And um, it's they crafted a really solid record top to bottom with that one. It's a, you know, I love How Could You Want Him? And also sure. More Than She Knows, which is the only yeah. song that contains a uh, John Popper harmonica solo that I can tolerate. I see. I hadn't even thought about that. Ah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Great. Here, I want to. Here's my here's my first ninety one record. Sure. And it's going to tie back into Epic. Yep. We're talking about Epic Records a lot, um, and the album that I want to talk about is Way Past Midnight by Indiana Indiana's own Henry Lee Summer. Oh wow! Yeah. So that came out that yeah. year. Yes, it did. It came out in the summer, and he went on tour. To support that album with another band that uh, that put out a record in 91 that we've been talking about throughout the year, but we've never covered on the show, 38 Special. That's yeah. a double bill that Jeff Giles wow. would have liked to have seen. I didn't even know it existed in 91. I should have gone. But um, Henry Lee Summer, you know, uh, had a big hit with I Wish I Had a Girl in 88. And then um, followed it up in 1990 with another album called I've Got Everything. That was supposed to be his, you know, his next step up the up the ladder. But from yeah. what I've heard, um, this was around the time that um, Sony was starting to come in and sort of impose their will on Columbia. You know, Walter yeah. Yetnikoff was forced to resign. Tom yeah. Matola came and stepped in. And so, uh, as tends to happen when these behind the scenes shenanigans occur in the C-suite. A lot of artists were affected from what I've read. Henry Lee was one of those artists. I think he spent, uh, I don't know. I think from what I, I read some interviews prior to talking to you guys today. And it, sure. It, I, like, I think he submitted 38 demos to the label and they were all rejected. Like it took, wow. It took quite a while for this record to come together. Wow. And when it finally did the lead off single, there's a song called um, When Somebody Loves You, which was written by Henry Lee with Michael Bolton and Diane Warren. No shit. Now, you can't. Oh, man. You can't. You can't, Like, if you're going to lab create a single in 91, yep. Bolton and Diane Warren yep. are going to be involved. And um, so yeah, you can see the label kind of aligning the machinery behind this thing, but it just did not do anything. And let's look at this, like, because Bolton, also a fellow um, artist in the Sony family. So don't you see that that's probably yep. something that they said, Michael, we need you to do this. There's no way yeah. that he's like, like, because there was a decent, uh, <laughs> like, like the I've Got Everything record. Hey, hey, baby was a pretty decent, you know, single off of that. But I just can't see Michael Bolton be sitting there going, you know, man, I really for, I dug those last two Henry Lee summer records. Can you can you put me together right with him? I just don't see that happening. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that sounds like corporate overthinking. Right? Did you there, listen you to know? that record, Jeff? That yeah, album? I remember. Um, I don't know if you remember this or if either one of you remember this, but that year, Sony did something with Coke. <laughs> yeah, I think Matt, maybe you and I have talked about this. We yeah, have those they, little three inch CDs. Yes. If you bought a 12 pack of Coke, you would get one of, I think, three or four uh, tiny, uh, what was it, CD3? What, yeah, what, it was. What even was the format? They were three inch CDs. little thing that would fit. Yep. It would fit in the depression in your CD player. Um, and it had, I don't know, I think they each had five songs or something. And they were all 
Sony artists. Yeah. Um, typically B or C level artists that needed a little bit of a push. Um, and one of the, one of those CDs had Henry Lee's cover of fooled around and fell in love. No, which, yeah. Uh, is that on that record? You know, it, it is. <laughs> and if you know, if you're, if you're listening to this show and you know, the sound of Henry Lee Summer's voice, it's almost, you know, like I subscribe to the idea that if you're going to cover a song, you should bring something new to it. And Henry sure. Lee sounds a lot like this. His cover sounds a lot like the original version. There's very little difference there. Yeah. It's almost a carbon copy. I could hear him. So anyway, that. that was what, yeah. yeah, that's what hipped me to this record. And, and I, um, I was getting a lot of, uh, promos at the time because i was reviewing everything and so while i can't say i purchased this album i did own it and i did listen to it and there were songs that i enjoyed um but it it landed like a brick man nobody cared i don't i i i feel like i did the thing with henry henry lee summer at one point where it's like i loved hey baby and i loved wish I had a girl. So I think that I totally did the thing where it's like, I bought like those three albums, including way past midnight. But I, I mean, you, dude, yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned the single to me. I've got no recognition. I'm going to pull it up on YouTube and see if I <laughs> see if I recognize it, but I can't imagine that I ever played through that record. The other, the other thing I'm going to admit to you today, which I've been thinking about a lot, because I knew that you were going to bring it up. You mentioned the 38 special record, and that might be a good segue yeah. because dude, you know, I'm a big 38 fan. I don't think I have ever played through the entirety of that record one time. Did you like that record? That record is, well, it, that record is so fascinating to me because those guys had been on A&M for like a hundred years and yeah. then they scored their biggest single ever with Second Chance, Yep. which, you know, admittedly is not, you wouldn't hear it and think, oh, that's 38 special. Great. They're back. Um, but you would think that that would generate enough goodwill to keep them around at A&M, but no, instead three years after that album was released, they resurfaced on charisma of all places huh. uh, with this, the 91 album bone against steel, um, which I thought was very strange. The other thing that I thought was strange is that somebody in the liner notes is credited with playing symbol, which I found hilarious in 1991. And I'm still laughing huh. at it now. I don't know how you credit somebody with symbol. I don't know what you need to do in the studio to get that type of credit tells me probably just show up with three. I mean, this was a band. Yeah, that sounds like that. Kind th of this band used to have two drummers for no reason that I've ever been able to uh, figure out. And they went from that to this album, which I, you know, in, in, in places sounds fairly heavily programmed, but the lead off single is the flip side of Cleopatra's Cat, because <laughs> it rules. It should have been a much bigger hit, The Sound of Your Voice. Well, you know, it's funny, 38 Special, I remember, just jump ahead, when we were making pretty, our best records with a guy named Tim Padlin, who's a really eccentric producer mm. up in Michigan, who, like, did the Sponge record. Mm. He really is just, he's our guy. Like, he's the guy, you know, we did Fitzroy and Mort Hurts, but we, you know, we meet with him, we wouldn't even record for, like, days. Like, you just hang out, he'd disappear and wouldn't come back. And we're like, what's going on here? Like, well, you know, how's this guy work? Everyone's like, just deal with him. Like, trust me. He works in a way. And then we're finally having our meeting. We're talking about whatever. And like, you know, when we're asking him, like, you know, well, what do you, you know, what do you like to do or what kind of songs or whatever? And he's like, every song I'm just trying to make as good as the greatest song ever recorded. And we're like, <laughs> oh no. What's that? 
Like we're thinking, is it going to be the Beatles? He's like, hang on. Oh my God. (laughs) And he wasn't kidding. And then you listen to that song in a new light. He said, it's the perfect pop song production. Cause you know, we just got used to it. And I remember like Tim saying like the goal should to make every song as good as, and no one says this like in indie rock world, you know what I mean? But that's a, but then you listen to it, it could be done in any way, power up. It's, I mean, we all love it. But then I sat there and I'm like, it's brilliant. It's flawless. He said it's flawless. It's the most top to bottom sentiment, everything, execution. Wow. So, you know. That is a great song. Little, I can't argue so against that. But. So, so, so by the transitive property, <laughs> Every record we've ever done with Tim Paddle on, he's just trying to make a sound. Hey, you know like what? I, res- I respect but, that, yeah, Colin. I got to say that. I like Watershed just a little bit more. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, you probably yeah. each day since then just hated 38 Special a little bit more. So I understand that. <laughs> you know, well, that was one of those songs, you know, growing up with MTV. They sure. were, I always liked 38 Special, but you didn't, I don't even know if I ever bought a record. They were just, they were everywhere. Yeah. You know, they were just. You know, so, but, uh, you know, I always enjoyed so, them. So, Jeff, here's uh, a know. question. Everywhere. For you. And here's yeah. Small Miracle, not a very photogenic. A batch of fellows in yeah. that group and the fact that they were able to be as successful as they were in the MTV era. Good for them. They made some videos. And by the way, I, we're talking about the sound of your voice. Yes, they did. I'm going to get to that. The sound of your voice. Great single, perfect lead off single from the bone against steel album. If you seek out the video on YouTube, you can thank me later because it is fucking hilarious. Oh, I will. The, 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 the director must have been handed his orders by the label. Like, do not show any member of this band for more uh-huh. than two seconds at a time. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say they made some videos prior to that with like regrettable storylines. I mean, just the fact that they had storylines yes. was really the regrettable problem. I mean, there was so, one, um, it's yeah. Model After Hill Street Blues. That's the one that I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, was that that was probably back to back back where you belong, correct? Is that the one where yeah, it's I the, think so. the police so, people? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So yep, yep. since you've like listened to that Bone Against Steel record a lot, like ultimately, how damaging do you think that record was to Thirty Eight Special's career? Because they don't make a record again for a long time until uh, 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 uh until you know ninety seven or so. Yeah, with the, at that with point, the resolution on... album, which was a great record, CMC. They're on CMC International. <laughs> I think that album came out of Razor and Tie. You could be right about that. Yeah, but Razor and Tie. It, You're right. Either way, either way, that's a pretty steep drop, right? You go from yeah. A&M to Charisma, which I, I think Charisma was like Virgin's version of Reprise. Like I think I think it was just sure. some stationary and maybe a desk in the corner of an office someplace. I don't think they was yep. really much of a label behind that. The other big record that Charisma, I put air quotes around big, that Charisma put out in the summer of 91 was uh, <laughs> to Pals The Promise. I didn't bring that up. Yes. Yes. It's good that I know I that. That's, that's just... useless. <laughs> I don't know what function Charisma really served in the Virgin EMI machinery at that point, but it seems like they were just kind of there to glurge out product that was in the pipeline as a favor to somebody. I don't know. I, I really think signing that deal, whatever led to it, I would love to hear the stories behind it. it. That It was not a rock label. It was not a label that had any promotional muscle. How they ended up there, I have no idea. They should have been on Epic, for God's sake. Yeah. Epic yeah. could have done something with that record. Yeah. 1991, I'm in a record store, uh, working in a record store, and that Tapal record comes across as a promo, and I'm playing it. I'm very <laughs> I'm very excited. And my boss comes back from the back room, and he goes, what's that playing? And and I'm just, I'm so excited to tell him it's the new Tapal record. <laughs> he just looks at me with a blank stare, 
And he says, let's put something else on. <laughs> so, so Another Colin, mystifying decision. Like, that group yeah. had a huge hit in 87. Yeah. And then nothing in the United States until mid-1991. Who thought it was going to sell for dick? I have I, I can't. <laughs> Maybe that was the marketing understand. meeting. Like, you know what, guys? Maybe this will sell for dick. Let's find out. <laughs> so um, another one of the records that that I'll toss Colin's way because, you know, Colin brought this up and this was like, without a doubt, a huge, huge formative record for me. Um, Colin, like, tell me, like, how do you come to Girlfriend from Matthew Sweet? Right. Well, Columbus, Ohio had a, and maybe I'm sure you guys had maybe the end up there, but we sure. had CD 101, which is an independent radio station, and it's still on the air as CD 92.9. So having this kind of random station that would support bands like ourselves, other, but their playlist was always a little off. So there's always bands in Columbus that are maybe disproportionately bigger than anywhere else. And like Matthew Sweet's been on the radio in Columbus nonstop. Like I, 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 I bet I'll hear, I'll hear girlfriend if I sit in the car for an hour. So it's just one of those things where having an independent commercial radio station that plays alternative music, Andy Mann or yeah. Andy Davis, whoever, someone just liked the record early. And basically every Matthew Sweet song has always been on the radio in Columbus, every single. And I always think too, Matt's, his albums kind of remind me of the Smithereens and like they're, the albums are all yeah. really, really good, but the singles are so amazing that they just kind of, make the rest of the albums kind of almost melt in their wake, you know, not that they're so you know, you know, a lot of people don't take deep dives into Matthew sweet. Um, but you know, just hearing sure. Evangeline and, you know, I actually like some of the later albums more, Ooh. but you know, Matthew sweet, like I said, that sound, that voice, it's pretty timeless. And when you just, when you, you're one of those guys, when you just don't know what to play, just put on Matthew sweet. At least it's like, you know, one of those default guys. And it's always, you it's probably heard this, good. like, uh, but just like speaking of like his good songs, like in my book, some of his best songs didn't even make the records. And and an example for girlfriend is if you heard the song because he still plays it live here and there to this day, super deformed. That's a phenomenal song. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, the the EP that came out after it was was uh, the son of Ultra yep. Beast is awesome, and that was you know and don't don't cry no tears and all that stuff and. Uh, that was great. So, which I believe was, was that, that was just right after it or, or altered beast than that. But, uh, yeah, he was on a hot streak right there. And, um, and, you know, like I said, you just can't go wrong with really anything he does. It's always, even as new records, there's always some just stone cloak. Stone so he had put out two records prior to that. Um, at least he put out inside and he had put out earth. So Colin, for you, like, what is it like, you know, about the girlfriend record that you think like struck a chord with people? I mean, obviously people just really like, I, I never thought girlfriend was one of the best songs. Sure. Agreed. Matthew Sweet, but at least speaking in Columbus for that time, it just was, it was kind of just a minor little regional hit in Columbus, Ohio. And that was really the song that got a lot of play. And then we listened a little deeper and then obviously the, the guitar playing having, you know, Lloyd on there and not like, you know, adding. Yeah. Richard, Richard Lloyd, Lloyd and right? Robert. Guitar, Clark. Who's the guitar? It's tel- yeah. 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 From television, obviously. The television guys, that's just like a whole new mind-blowing spin and sound. And then his voice is just so, I don't know how to, you know. Did you guys ever see The Thorns when he went out and did that I didn't see it, but the, I had the record. It not Pete Yorn. Sean Mullins. Pete Drove, yeah. who I forget. Was, yeah, it was three people. And I actually saw him open 
for Jayhawks, uh, yeah. the Jayhawks, which was incredible. And, and I drank way too much Herb. <laughs> I did. It was at the zoo. And we didn't, but anyway, I remember when he was singing, it was like this three-piece harmony. But all you could hear was, all it sounded like was Matthew Sweet. Because his voice, whoever he sings with, just has that tone, that voice that just carries right through. And I think um, something about his vocals mixed with those guitars. And obviously the songs are pretty catchy, too. You know, he just has a unique, he is just kind of a God-given sound that, you know, just, it makes you pay attention. We did. Um, and at that point, it's funny looking at all these albums from 1991. And I realized we were traveling a lot in a van. We would play a lot of albums a ton. And then a lot of albums we would just play once or twice. Because it was just, you know, it wasn't, there was no Spotify. Like, I know I listened to Henry Lee hmm. Sumner. I can't remember exactly what I listened to. You might have to. played with Henry Lee Sumner and you don't remember. It was... I know. I want to see Frankie LaRocca play maybe drums on one of those songs. Think yeah. of our old A&R guy. But if something was pretty good, you might play it once or twice in your van, yeah. and then you just go back and play whenever we wanted by Melancholy. You would just play the same record ten times and listen through something more than yeah. once or twice, mm -hmm. and it's just it's and then it was just forgotten because it wasn't it didn't exist anymore if you didn't have it in your hands, especially when you're yeah. Traveling. You know, and you mentioned kind of the deeper cuts from Matthew Sweet. Like I love the stuff on that record, like Day for Night. Thought I knew you. Um, I wanted to tell you. Um, like there were a lot, and and I also like yep. that he was a guy that like wore his influences pretty openly. Like um, there's a promo disc that circulated at the time called Good Friend that now is part of a like two disc reissue of Girlfriend, where you know he's out there covering Cortez the Killer with the Indigo Girls. Like so, it's just like he was one of those guys that like he would do some oh. covers in the live setting that you're like that kind of helped to like put in color it helped to colorize a little bit more okay here's where this guy comes from like i just thought he he obviously had some really solid stuff in his musical dna and, and it just for whatever reason like i mean we mentioned robert quine and and richard lloyd like you know it all crystallized with that record with the personnel and and just the songs and everything like it was a hell of a record still holds up jeff yep i i actually story about that i remember i went to see him open up for uh, the Indigo Girls at Vets Memorial yeah. in Columbus, Ohio. And I had been maybe on the road. I've been working. I had just hadn't had any sleep. And I was up in the balcony with my girlfriend at the time. And when Matthew Sweet played Cortez the Killer, I <laughs> fell asleep. I literally started like my nodded off because we were in the very back and it was cool, but it was so chill. And then uh, I just remember being like, my she was like, you're sleeping. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Um, and then, uh, you know, Indigo Girls came out, and it was that, that was when it was like Indigo Girls mania. It was like the Beatles hitting the stage. It was unbelievable. But it, Matthew Street was still really good. But anyway, I did fall asleep doing Quartes well, the Killer. As we move off before. of uh, Matthew Sweet, I should say that I owe my marriage to Matthew Sweet because I put uh, a, a version, whether it was live or the demo for Super Deformed, on my music blog, Addicted to Vinyl. And my now wife, Annie Zaleski, uh, was writing a blog post uh, for the Riverfront Times in St. Louis promoting uh, the fact that uh, Matthew Sweet was going to be in town playing a show that night. And uh, she put you know five you know matthew sweet songs that you know people should know or something along those lines and she was looking for a version of super deformed to link to she came across my blog and um you know flash forward to me checking my blog stats like a day or so later and here's these links you know cleveland 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 wait a second somebody from st louis linked to my blog this thing's going worldwide i thought and, and, and then i saw her name <laughs> 
I saw her name and I'm like, oh, she's from Cleveland. I remember, you know, you know, reading, you know, her stuff when she was here and all that kind of stuff. So emailed her, you know, thanked her, you know, and we start trading emails. And of course, the rest is history. So uh, and we got to tell that nerdy story to Matthew Sweet. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But um, so that record, um, that record already since 1991 has held a special place in my heart, but will always uh, hold an even more special place because of that. So there you go. That is delightful. Yep. I was, I was going to say, not, not related, but Does She Talk? That's my favorite deep cut on that. That's kind of a little rocker way down. It's got kind of a glam rock sound, and that's uh, Does She Talk is my See, you say it's not related. You say it's not related, Colin, but Annie does talk. Annie talks a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> she'll tell me, she's like, I'm glad you like my opinions because you're getting them. Even if you don't like them, you're getting them. So she talks. But then, no, seriously, Colin, that's that's a great tune. There's a there's some really a dark stuff album. on that record, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't move away from Matthew Sweet without mentioning that that album came out through Zoo Entertainment. Yep. And at that point in time, Matthew Sweet was label mates with Procol Harum. They released their yes, yeah. they they broke. I don't know. Matt probably knows better than I do. I I, don't, I actually know very little about this band, but I think they've been out of commission for yeah fifteen years at that point or so. Like this was a big. I deal. feel like that's true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, they got the band back together, and yeah. Procol Harum released an album through Zoo. It was it, and nothing happened. No one cared. And, but you said you heard that record, and it's actually yes. a good record, right? I yeah. mean, I, like it's—I think you told me at the time you're like, "That's the only Procol Harum record I've ever listened to." <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe HSAS doing that cover of Whiter Shade of Pale got their career <laughs> right. going again. Start yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just. It just made it it made it relevant with the kids, right? Yes, that's, yes, that's, that's exactly what yeah. happened. I remember Zoo being part of this little mini flurry of vanity imprints that started up around that period of time. Like you had um, Imago, and yep, Imago, JRS, which was one that crashed oh, wow, and burned JRS, pretty yeah. quickly. Yep. Zoo, uh, Chameleon, yeah, it was like it was the it was they hip brought all some. Of a they brought some pretty like. You know, important things though, like I mean, Imago brought uh, 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 Amy Mann, like the first, you know, one or two solo records from her, and right. obviously, just like artistically, as far as records, records, record sales long term. I mean, Zoo had had Tool, which basically mm-hmm. kept their lights on for yeah, a lot exactly. of years, and then <laughs> and then Zoo eventually becomes Volcano. So it's like right. in a weird way, like you know, like like Tool kind of helped to keep the lights on, I think, for Matthew Sweet's career in a weird way for a few years longer for sure. than it might have as far as being on that label and in that setting. So, you know. It wasn't Volcano. connections are weird. Volcano is actually Scotty Brothers, right? Which was another label that was I think held, you might be correct on that. That label was held afloat by um, Weird Al Yankovic forever. So two, two, two one-artist labels coming together in, in a glorious act of corporate synergy. So one of the records, uh, Jeff, that also was out in 1991 um, would be "Into the Great Wide Open" by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Is this a record? Is this a record that, like, where? where, How did you feel about that record? Did you buy it? Like, you know, where are you with Tom Petty in 1991? I didn't buy it, but I did like the singles. And we have to say that the only reason we didn't cover that was that we had to choose between Tom Petty and Van Halen, and so we went with Van Halen. But we did. Yeah. Not a bad record. There are tough I think. choices in life. <laughs> they could have picked a better producer, in my opinion, but it's, it's not a bad record. 
Oh, for so you would rather have somebody than than Jeff Lynn on that record? I am the I I'm the man who once described the Traveling Wilburys as uh, four four rock legends and the guy from ELO. So yes, I <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Lynn has never met a rhythm section that he could not make sound like the instruments were being performed on. Like he makes. He makes drums sound like they're being played on cardboard and he makes basses sound like kazoos. I am not a huge fan of his production style. It doesn't, it's not the worst fit for the songs on that record, but I don't know. What, what about you guys? How, how do you feel about this album? I mean, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I think that full moon fever obviously was yeah. a smash and they had kind of hit the wall with their way they've been recording. Right. And, you know, and Tom, I mean, you know, that's what we say this now. I mean, it, it seemed like it made sense to bring Jeff Lynne into that band environment, but you're taking the guy who's like the king of like the sterile recording style that, you know, nobody does anything. And you're mixing him with this band that used to play like 80 takes right. of even the loser. And they're both, both approaches are kind of insane in their own way. So to think that I, I, the thing that that was going to mesh with those guys, you know, uh, and I think it's a fine record. It was, it was, it, you know, it has singles. It sounds like Tom Petty. At that point, there was no way that album wasn't going to sell a lot True. of copies, really, no matter what they did. But it's not an album I find myself really going back to dig in deep, like out in the cold. I mean, there's good stuff on there. It's Tom Petty. But that it does leave me feel. It leaves me feeling a little. It feels a little yep. hollow. You know, it doesn't feel great. Uh, it could have been could have been better, probably. But, you know, it, it's still it's Tom Petty. It's good. But, yeah, I'm not. I mean, Jeff Lynn, when he does what he does, it works pretty well. But overall, he's not one of those guys. I'm like, I want to hear Jeff Lynn's production. Yeah. I'm not, I know it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's not, no, I'm not that guy. I, I heard a couple things because, like, there's, um, there's obviously been a lot of wildflower stuff going on in the past couple of years, mm. most recently, the Somewhere You Feel Free documentary. And so, isn't that funny that, that they're talking out, about that this year, but nobody said a word about the 30th anniversary of Into the Great Wide Open? It is pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't yeah. get what that's about other than like obviously somewhere in the midst of everything they found they're like, you know, oh, we have this, you know, film from the Wildflowers era, like we should do something with this and yeah. you know, and it seems like that kind of sprung up and you had this documentary that, you know, hypothetically really should have been ready around the time that they did the Wildflowers <laughs> reissue last year, yeah. but makes its way out this year. Um but the Wildflowers and all the rest, like there's one of the songs that completely um I missed from the all the rest portion when the box set came out last year was um, something could happen. And when I, when I went to see the uh, documentary in the theaters just a few weeks ago, um, they played the video that they put together for something could happen prior to the, doc the documentary. And at first, like um, I thought maybe, is this how the documentary starts? Like, it's just a really interesting video presentation that like, honestly, it hit me in the same way, Colin, that, a and boy hit me like it's a it's a heartbreaking song yep. with the treatment that they gave it with the video that you're sitting there you just feel all melancholy by the time you get to it get to the end of the tune and it was an interesting way to open up the documentary but um it, it was honestly there was no real context to it like i think they just kind of like stuck it in front of the documentary because it's the most recent video that they had made or whatever the case was but in an odd way like it worked really well as a lead in to the documentary. So listening to that song in a movie theater, it was interesting to me that I could hear, and I really haven't like heard this with any of the other um, 
wildflowers material, but I could almost hear some of the experience of working with Jeff Lynn carry over into that song. Like the drums kind of sound like Jeff Lynn like and all that kind of stuff. So, so what that makes me think of is it makes me think of that into the great wide open to me kind of seems like the bridge record that kind of took Petty creatively the rest of the way to where he was going with the record that he was going to make with wildflowers and into the great wide open has some of my favorite songs, like the title track. I love a lot. Um, the dark of the sun is just a beautiful song. Um, all the wrong reasons. Um, you and I will meet again. I mean, if I have to pick really the, the, one of the songs that I've gone back to pretty consistently, like the dark of the sun, is just a, just a wonderful, wonderful song. But, um, so for me at the time, like th- that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up with you guys. Cause I know that like L- Jeff Lynn is such a polarizing thing with people. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's possible that there's people that miss this album just because of how much they can't stand Jeff Lynn's production. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not like it sounds bad and that's kind of splitting hairs. And <laughs> I, I was thinking about my, myself too, also too. I think at this point too, there really was some, there was some Tom Petty residual just fame, you, you know, I can be that way. When something you like gets so big and like the video and a roadie named Bart and yep. Johnny yeah. Depp, it really became a little, it almost became a little, you know, it's not fair, but if you've been on the ride, it got a little too Hollywood. Mm. If that makes yeah. sense where it was kind of hard to be like, man, I just love the new Tom <laughs> Petty. You know, it wasn't like, and, and it's not, it's not right. But you know, that, that video, there was just a lot of periphery things with Tom and all that stuff going on. And full moon fever was so big and, and the Wilburys. I don't even know if the Wilburys were around then or not. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember. So in a way it just, it just got to be a little too much. We're not going to talk about this, but I realized Aerosmith Pandora's box came out this year, mm. their big box set of all their early yeah. stuff. And I remember at my age, Aerosmith was like, they were broken up. They were my favorite band. And I remember being like, I just hope one day, They'll play one of their videos on TV. <laughs> yeah. Cut to like three years later. I'm like, God, you careful can stop what you wish for. The videos on MTV. <laughs> oh, it's like they became, you know, crying and yeah. all that stuff. And Petty didn't go full on Aerosmith, but he was getting to that point of saturation where it was just, you know, it felt like it was someone else's thing, and you know, the Johnny Depp thing and all that. You know, what I, I think mean? that's a great analogy. It got to be a bit. That's much. a really great analogy. I think. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't love that title track. It's fine. But the roadie named Bart, that takes me right out of the song every time. Like, <laughs> couldn't you spend more than two yeah, minutes? It's all literal yeah. in the video, and it probably cost, I don't know. It's like, I watched it. It was like such a big deal, you know? But I guess I guess when you got to compete with November Rain <laughs> and you can't come out with a, you know, you got to have something. Learning to Fly, so. I think, is a great song. That's one that I would pick from that record. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's a great song, too. It, if you ever want to give someone guitar lessons, what I've done rarely, I think it's just four chords in a row. So I want to learn these chords by learning to fly. There's no bridge. I think it's like F, G, yeah. A, and something. So all you aspiring guitar players, play that song. You can learn four chords real easy because it just goes right through it. And it's Petty's got a few. I, mean, a guitar- I remember learning yeah. to play um, Free Fallen. If you do it, it's been a while now. I can't remember. But I think if you use a capo on a certain uh, spot on the neck – you don't even need to move your hand. I think you could just play three variations of D and that's the entire song. That's I, that's usually how Yeah, I cracked up when I figured that out. I was like, man, you, you should just retire. Once you figure out a song that you can like, you don't even have to move your fucking hand to play it and and it becomes an enormous hit. Yeah. Well, you've done it. Yeah. There's nothing left. It's all downhill from here. 
I mean, you guys, like, how much yep. of a secret Absolutely. weapon is Mike Campbell? Like, I remember talking mm-hmm. to David David Lowry wow. from Cracker, and, like, you know, we were talking about Mike's work with Cracker, and he's just like, Mike's the master of the riff, and he's like, dude, running down a dream, and he's like, he's like, Mike comes up with the little thing on that song, but he's like, that little thing is the thing that makes that song, and, like, yeah. he, uh, Mike Campbell's done a lot of that with Petty's songs, like, I mean, Colin is a guitar player. Like, oh. w- was that just like crazy for oh. you to hear the hear those like little riffs? I mean, Dan Barrett. I mean, I think that's one thing that all of us love about Dan Barrett as well. Dan Barrett has the thing. Dan Barrett can do the thing. Like, and Mike Campbell, very much in the same way, yeah. can do the thing. Yeah, I mean, Mike Campbell. It's just, I mean, I, I don't know how. On one hand, he's underrated. On the other hand, you could say maybe he's the best <laughs> guitar player of all time. And and it, they're both valid points. I mean, he's so. What can't he do? Yeah. You know what I mean? He's so understated and he's just been such a loyal guy to Tom and he writes and adds all those parts. And I mean, and when he wants to show off just a little, mm. it's breathtaking. Um, uh, like I said, he's just one of those guys on the short list where I'm always like, when you just like, I went and saw Lindsey Buckingham recently oh, and I was nice. just like, you, you can, you can look at each other and just be like, you know, he might be the best mm. guitar player. You can say that about a lot of guys when you're watching them live. And Mike Campbell's one of those guys, like, if you ever got to ask the person in charge of the planet, <laughs> seriously, who is the best? And I'd be like, number three, Mike Campbell. Like, really? Yeah, he's actually better than Hendrix. I was wondering, maybe he was. I mean, like, he's, just, he's one of those guys uh, on that short list. Like, with Willie Nelson's one of those guys, I'd say, Lindsey and Mike. They're just, they make it look so easy that, you know, but then when you dig in, and his, you know, his his latest band, yeah. really Day, the Dirty Knobs, yeah. is really cool. And you hear all those all those petty things. But yeah, Mike Campbell. Um, but yeah, he and then you know he also shows you the strength of a band. Like when you think about from '91, right when Izzy Stradlin left Guns N' Roses, that was pretty much the death knell for mm, that band. Because yeah. to find something that works so good, and I think we'd all agree on this: bands have a certain chemistry, and they're not right. to be yeah. messed with, and especially when you're that good. And the fact that Mike Campbell, when Tom was doing his thing, had the foresight not to take it personally, and he was right there on Full Moon Fever, and to be that steadying influence, I mean, I don't think it's hyperbole to say there wouldn't be Petty without Campbell right. next to him. I don't think it could happen. Sure. I mean, I think they're A and B. I mean, they're, you know, they're right there, and uh, Campbell never seeks the limelight, but he's... Uh, He's as great as he's as good as it gets, really. So, what do we think about where John Mellencamp was in 1991 with whenever we wanted? Well, I can tell you guys this. You know, we all liked Mellencamp a, a lot. You know, I don't know in Columbus, Ohio, we went the Scarecrow album was really cool, and we would go see him live and got good seats, and he was rolling. And Lonesome Jubilee was really cool, and then Big Daddy or whatever, and then maybe you start thinking, well. He's probably had his little run. It's probably over. Not over, but we just kind of lost interest. And then whenever we wanted, right away, we were like, that was probably, that, that all of a sudden we were like listening to Mellencamp again. And like, is it us or is this just really good? So and we play that album a lot. It's got a little edge to it. It's it's a really, I'd say, it's off my head. I'm no Mellencamp expert, but from the early days, it'd be, Scarecrow, whenever we wanted, you know, one and one A and one B. I think whenever we wanted, it's a really cool record, and it was really kind of came out of left field because it was kind of going down the same path, and he shook it up. Did you buy that record, Jeff? You know, at this point in time, uh, my position with Mellencamp was: uh, I get it. You are from a small town. I understand. 
I think I've heard everything you have to say on any subject that you could possibly want to sing about. So no, <laughs> I did not buy it. Um, I, I just just now was looking at the um, Wikipedia page for this record as you guys were talking about it. I didn't. I, it slipped my mind that this was the first one that was credited to to just John Mellencamp. I didn't realize he dropped. Yeah, the I don't think I did that, that either. Yeah, I never, yeah. I that yeah. Um. Yeah, it might be the last record for me, the last Mellencamp album that I really bought and really listened to. Now it's a long time ago. I, like I said, I don't follow John all the way through, but like, like I know right away when I see that right. album cover, and they're like, and I thought, you know, again tonight, and it, yeah. it just got a, I don't know, it's a cool, it's a, it's, it's a cool record, and I know. Mellencamp, you know, I said that he has people like him and don't like him. I've always had a soft spot for him. Um, part of it, maybe growing up, and it sounds stupid, but like growing up in the suburbs of Columbus, I grew up in the suburbs, but but like on our way to church, you would like, you know, <laughs> drive back in those days, you drive through cornfields and stuff. Yeah. So like you, you felt strangely like you kind of understood where this guy yeah. was coming from. Cause like Bruce or kind of those populist guys didn't really speak, you know, and we were stuck with what was mm. on the radio. So I'd have my paper out and I'd listen to my FM headphones. So compared to a lot of things out there, you know, tumbling down was cool. You know, they, they, you know, they weren't, no, they weren't awesome. You know, they didn't rock your world, but Scarecrow was the first time I ever thought about that mm -hmm. stuff and that, you know, that kind of vibe and that record. So I always had a soft spot and then he would play your town and you could go get good seats to see Melon Camp. Like you could get in the yeah. fifth row. And when you're young, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty big star and he'd play his songs and everything. I'm so. That's my, that's my, in retrospect, I appreciate his stuff a lot more just in the moment at the time mm. he would come out with an album every couple of years. And I'd always feel like, again, didn't I hear this song from you last time? <laughs> um, but I, I think this album represents a, a, I think he sensed that he had sort of beaten gone too far. The, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe gone too far, maybe just beaten that particular drum enough and he wanted yeah. to do something different. And I think this starts a string of records through the late nineties that um, really sort of demonstrated that he had a vitality and a hunger as a, as a songwriter that I don't necessarily sense from him these days. Uh, and, and, you know, given that, given that he yeah. was um, kind of at the top of his game commercially, in the late eighties, I find it admirable that he took any kind of left turn at all. And, and, and he, and he did that a few times through the nineties, starting with this record. So I, I can appreciate it. I appreciate what Colin. Yeah. Sorry. And go I ahead. Think, Colin. I was say too. And I, and I don't know if this is a great comparison, but I think too, some, like I think Mellencamp sometimes gets underrated. Like it's just like some of his funnier songs. And I think, you know, any, I think even much like Springsteen, you know, you, Somewhere, somewhere along the way, like kind of that goofy looseness mm, fades yeah. away as you get older. But even on this, where like a song like "Get a Leg Up," "Get a Leg Over," I like. I appreciate just stupid sure. rock and roll songs. And like Mellencamp would have enough of those on his albums that were kind of silly. Or like, I, there's a song he does, um, "Rudy Toot Toot," got a maiden shade like a ball. Through. Like, I think it's just brilliant lyrics about a guy who goes to have a barbecue on the side of the road, and the cop comes up and lets him go. <laughs> like, it's there's no point to it. And I think this record still has some of those kind of songs that are just maybe just, you know, throwaway rock and roll kind of Chuck Berry influenced. And then, you know, as he gets older, whatever, 
I don't know, maybe everything's got to be more serious mm. or things aren't, you know, and I, you know, you notice that just sometimes as acts move on um, and they get older, I don't you know, they're rock stars. They're living in a different world and they don't have that, you know, attachment. But I think this album has a couple of those kind of just good, like kind of fun rock and rollers where he's not, we're not trying to change the world yeah. on any yeah. track, you know, sometimes uh, I just talk about drinking beer. I think with the Human time. Wheels record moving forward, like he gets a lot more introspective and just like kind of world focused, um, you know, kind of like looking at the issues and, you know, he always kind of like wrote about the issues on the earlier records, but it's just like mm-hmm. he kind of takes that stuff more head on as the albums progress. And, you know, you said something that I really hadn't thought about a lot, Colin, which was just the fact that he had Big Daddy prior to the Whenever We Wanted record. And um, that's the record where it's like, I still will, you know, listen to the next record that comes out from somebody. I'll still pay attention even after I, you know, hate or strongly dislike a record from your band. And Big Daddy was a record that I really did not like. There was, you know, Pop Singer, which was, you know, successful single. Um, I don't know, Big Daddy of them all. I, I forget what all was on that record, but it's just like that record was enough of a left turn that when whenever we wanted came out, like I was like, just to hear get a leg up on the radio, like I, my ears perked up and I was like, not only does this sound like a Mellencamp song, I mean, and to Jeff's point, like he really had like, kind of like done that quote unquote song pretty much every way you could possibly do it. So I was a little bit burned out as well, Jeff, like by the time we got to Lonesome Jubilee, it's just like that, you know, I was a little bit Mellencamped out. And um, so it's almost like, Big Daddy was kind of a nice break because it's just like, because that record wasn't as successful as the rest of them had been, like my ears and everybody else, we kind of got a break. So it's like, get a leg up was like a really nice surprise. You know, love and happiness was cool. Um, There was, I was trying to see if I could find who did the mix, but there was a remix of love and happiness that is just billed as the London club mix that got a lot of airplay here in Cleveland. That was cool. Um, You know, I see now more than ever. I recall hearing that song. I, I don't, know that that was actually a radio type single but that was a good tune um and and then colin you mentioned again tonight like again tonight was the one that like i literally went out and bought the cd single i'm like that's a good that's a cool tune i'm like i gotta have that tune so interestingly i don't think i bought this record until much later but it's just like this is probably the last melon camp record that i actually you know really kind of quote unquote liked yeah me too i mean and the the first i think you can't understate the opening track, Love and Happiness, was pretty jarring yeah, for me. Absolutely. It was so different. And then to go right into Now More Than Ever, it was a pretty strong. And like you said, we'd kind of forgotten Big Daddy, well, whatever, whatever. So it's whatever it is, just that opening salvo definitely perked up. And we just, you know, we started playing this record a lot. And it probably was the last Mellencamp record that I could even talk about off the cuff with any sense of like yeah you know what i mean i don't know if i really did listen yeah. to anything else poor key west intermezzo nobody loves it in this podcast i do like that song oh i should say dance dance naked that's actually a pretty good that's a good it's an ep there's nine songs on it there's like three or four songs in that that are awesome okay, <laughs> I did listen nice. to that, but that was it so as our time shrinks away jeff like uh what else should we yeah. mention like record wise oh man uh did we ever really do blow up? Did we hit the smithereens oh, yeah, for sure. real? Did we ever talk about blow up? Did you want to talk? We, we I think we intro, but I don't know if we ever really did. did, did I had the single promo things and don't get to it. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> I had the single. That's all I. I don't think I've ever listened to a blow up start to finish, but I did like top of the pops. Well, it's, it's funny doing some smithereens. I don't. I'm always vaguely looking at smithereens stuff. 
But in my mind, all these records, their albums always seem bigger than yeah. they were. Like they, you say, there was a song like, like I thought, I, I, I don't even know why I was looking at Eleven this week. But in my mind, A Girl Like You was the number three song in America and it sold yep. five million copies. It's not even I think that record might have gone happened. gold. So I remember when we, yeah, it, but it just felt big. I don't know, maybe in Columbus, Ohio, they played it every, you know, hour on, on the AOR radio. But uh, when we were doing the Smithereens tour, those guys, they had a date with the Smithereens. Was, that was, they were come, blown to Smithereens. Date with whatever. the Smithereens, that's it. They were doing yeah. that record. Well, yeah, which is a great, great record. It's really, that's probably top to bottom, maybe my favorite Smithereens record. But Blow Up, you know, we were kind of with them at that point. And this is the, the classic, I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say they had gone to L.A., they had all like I know Jim had rented mansions. Yeah. The mm-hmm. budget was huge. Like nothing can stop us now. And then yep. screech, you know, just it never too too much passion was actually yep. a pretty big hit. But I mean, they got they got uh they got dropped after that record, I believe. The yeah, day when the Smithereens came out on RCA, a, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So Blow Up was the album, you know, and and you talk about not giving them. A, I mean, a, for a pretty solid act. It wasn't like it was a stiff. I mean, Top of the Pops, Too Much Passion. There's some good tracks on there. Indigo, yep. I think, uh, over and over Great again. Song. I really like. Um, but uh, Girl in Room but, 12. Yeah, that was kind of like, they. yeah. And those when they play those songs live, people dig them. It's not like, I don't know. It's just, I don't, maybe the, I don't know how contracts work, but there really wasn't any reason not to keep the Smithereens around. They were just making <laughs> yeah. Smithereens records. Um, but, you know, and, you know, but this one, I did, I did say they were all kind of like we were living you know, out in LA, they went Hollywood on that. So I don't know. Maybe the budget got a little unwieldy, and the corporate bean counters. Yeah, man, this, they but, had that hit with a um, girl like you, know, like you and I think the label just opened up the pocketbook. And this is not a band that was ever going to justify that yeah. kind of expense. They, yeah. Well, speaking of the pocketbook, Jeff, like I mean, it's like I, I forget about this, but like one of the songs which I think they did put out as some sort of single. Um, there's a song with Diane Warren on this record, "Get a Hold oh of My Heart." My it's a good God. tune. I would, I mean, Colin, wow. I don't put that as a Diane Warren song, but Pat wrote that with Diane. Wow, I didn't, you know, I never even, uh, I, I don't know, even know if I paid attention to it. I certainly didn't. Obviously, I didn't read the liner notes. Well, I mean, musicians would, uh, don't read. Come on, Colin. That. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, I would have thought. Yeah, so, and it wasn't. A, they never even got. Why would they, I don't think it was a single. Exactly. Yes. How do you get her to co-write? And then you don't release really, as, as, as. That's amazing. I had no idea. Wow. There you go. Yeah. There's your fun fact of the day, I Jeff. It's that's a yeah. good fact. I didn't know Pat ever ever uh, ever wrote with Diane Warren, but I guess. I guess everybody was right. Back then, you just did what the bosses told you. I guess you're out Other LA, fun fact about that song, you know, Carleen Carter not, did so. background vocals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I always think about yeah. when I think yeah. about Pat is, um, I think it might have been in, did you guys read Ice, the newsletter? that? Yep. that right? I, I think in the back pages of Ice, it may have been somewhere else, but I know for a fact that Pat advertised himself for a time in the mid to late 90s as a... Like he would write a song with you if you paid sure. him. Yep. Oh, and yeah. I, at the time felt like that was, that was to, to see that ad was, was jarring and, and sort of sad. I, I think about that a lot whenever yeah. I think about him. Yeah. Pat had a really, I mean, interesting fun. Now, I mean, you know, not that I mm. want to go there, but people, I didn't know him very well at all, but. Yeah, it was, you know, he's a different kind of guy down the road. And it was a lot of things going on that, you know, wish could have turned out differently. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, having said that, I'm glad 
that the other guys have been able to go on and, you know, not that anyone wished ill will or Pat or Pat to pass away, but it's nice that the other guys get a chance to play those songs, maybe, you know, with, with Marshall or whoever um, in a fresh light. Cause it really, it was, they were just kind of stuck, you know, and, and um, you know, one, and I should ask you guys, here's a, I got a question for you guys. This is a serious question. Every vinyl things coming out on reissue <laughs> in the history of the world and uh, oddly enough, Don Dixon was actually at my coffee shop with Terry Anderson. Wow. Terry Anderson was here going through town. And, you know, and I'm like, Don Dixon's coming down. And I'm like, who? What do you mean, Don Dixon? Like, the Don Such Dixon? Such a good dude. He's like, yeah, I used to tour with him and Marty. Terry, yeah, I had no idea yeah. he lives in Ohio now, right? Up by yep. you guys, Akron or something. So this is crazy, right? The coffee shop. So obviously, and he does everything, but I'm, a, you know, I'm smithereens. But the question I had is, if there's any band in the history of rock and roll that deserves a vinyl reissue treatment, it's the Smithereens. There's got to be money in there. I and mean, that's a band that is a vinyl band in its very core, especially those early records. When are the Smithereens records yeah. coming out? And he didn't have an answer. You know, I mean, who doesn't want to get green thoughts on vinyl? I do know that it's Come been on. talked about. Um, there's a great reissue label called Intervention Records that's out of kind of the Seattle area. And um, he has looked at um, getting some of those records reissued. And I think that like the pandemic hit and kind of like, you know, put the skids on, you know, some of that stuff. Um, and, and I think Smithereens reissues were yeah. part of that. But um, I know that he's a fan and was looking, I want to say he was looking, you know, if not let's say like, you know, like if, you know, green thoughts, I think was mentioned, but I want to say it was like the first three or four records he was looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, these are, I mean, they're, on the outside, these aren't, no, these aren't, they're not, no, they're not yeah. fringe records. I mean, this is a, for, compared to a lot of things right. that reissued. I mean, you can't tell me you didn't sell some Smithereens <laughs> records. You know what I mean? And those are, I mean, that's, yeah, there's stupider moves than that, but well, that's good to hear someone. Cause yeah. Don didn't have an answer. He was like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, how do we, how does this get done? I mean, you're Don Dixon. Certainly you can, you know, you know, get, get on the horn to somebody and let's get, let's yeah. Get bless Don. Don is a seriously good dude. And, uh, he was at one of the local bars here. Uh, this is probably, well, it was right before Annie and I started dating. So, um, he put up with me cornering him in that bar and we had a good chat about a date with the smithereens against his will. So he, he entertained oh, my yeah. questions about that record. And he's just like, uh, he's, he's one of the all time, you know, good guys. So. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no. And, that, and I love that record. I think that album is a tour de force top to bottom, you know? And, uh, yeah, he was, he seemed happy to talk smithereens, you know, with me I'm, same way. That's what I want to talk about. So. Well, I think, uh, we have, uh, reached the point where we, we need to wrap. We don't normally have a hard out on these things, but I'll just no. tell people listening that uh, I've got a phone date with um, Rick Richards of the Georgia Satellites. And, <laughs> and like we love the Rick. Lo the so awesome. And, and all three of us love Rick Richards, and it's like finding yes. the Loch Ness Monster, so I need to go talk to the <laughs> Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you, I'll be at the, you can find me at the coffee shop anytime. Talk to Rick Richards. So, uh, but we should say, you know, Colin Gal, you know, Watershed, everything Colin Gal wise. Pencilstorm.com is where folks can find you. Um, and Colin's yeah. Coffee, as we mentioned, Watershed put out uh, a record here within the past year called Extended Player. Like, what's the best way for people to get for to get your music, to get Watershed's music, et cetera? I mean, right now, I mean, that thing sold out vinyl. As, as lame as it is, just, you know, it's on Spotify. It's on streaming. It's out there. Colin Gow, Lee Bowler's Watershed. Just search it. It's all there. Uh, like I said, Pencil Storm's just a little website I run out of the coffee shop. But just it's more fun to have multiple contributors and do your own little page. So we just have fun on there, different writers contributing stuff and, you know, different music. But, yeah, you know, just go out and find it and Google it. We're hoping to have new Watershed out. 
next year. We've got something pretty close to being done, but right now it takes, I think it takes like 36 weeks yeah. to get a record yeah. printed right now, even for anybody. Cause I just was hanging, Jason, Jason oh, nice. was here yeah. with, and he was playing some Bob Mould, great guy. And his new album's really good, split single. And he was talking about his record and it took, I mean, it's just so, I don't know what that means, but we better get it done soon because we're we got to get in the pipeline but well you know, as long as we're going we always we love doing it so we love writing songs and playing songs so you know we'll have something kicking and then i'm always playing some solo gigs with the bowlers and you know just doing doing what i do so well um jeff like i had lots of things i wanted to say but i think we've said lots of <laughs> other things but i do want to tell <laughs> folks about like and i'll i'll kind of yield to you a little bit i guess but like you know this podcast like this is the bonus episode but we you know for people listening like we're going to carry things forward in 2022 and, you know, yes, we're we working are. on, you know, kind of getting the first, you know, few episodes together um, for a podcast that we are calling um, the record player, um, yep. which, uh, you know, has kind of a double meaning. Like, it's like, you know, okay, you know, there's obviously the record player, but there's also the three of us that like, we all play records. We are the record players in a sense. So um, recordplayerpodcast.com is where you can, you know, find information. Um, we're on Twitter at uh, recordplayerpod, P-O-D. Um, and I don't know what you want to say, Jeff, about it, but like, I'm really looking forward to, you know, cranking out some episodes on that with you. Like, you know, we're really, you know, we've been looking at records from 1991 this year. And as we, you know, move into next year, what we're going to do with the record player is we're going to look at some different years, some different genres. And, you know, I think it's going to be kind of fun um, thumbing through uh, the record collection of albums we know, but also like going out of our comfort zone for records we don't know at all. Yeah, man, I feel liberated. I'm excited to expand our scope here and, and continue doing what we're doing together. I The only thing that I would add is that this podcast came out of a, a an idea that I had after getting half drunk and getting on Twitter and saying, I need to make Matt do a podcast with me where we talk about the AOR of 1991 because it's such a funny year. You know, late stage AOR, basically. Uh, if you're thinking about yeah. the music that we grew up with, it's kind of the end of that and the beginning of something new. <clears throat> so I really, uh, there was no forethought. I just thought, I got to talk to Matt. This would be great. This would be a lot of fun. And it has been a lot of fun. And I'm really, uh, um, I, I really appreciate you doing this with me. It's, I, I've, I've, I've had a great old time and I'm looking forward to taking it in new directions next year. It's been a lot of fun, man. Um, you know, I'll just, I, I had more to say about this, but I'll just tell people it was a fucking weird year. It really was. And, um, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was a big lifeline. Um, I spent the first, you know, basically nearly five months of this year not listening to any music, which I hadn't done in all of my nearly 47 years on the planet at this point, at that point. And, uh, it, things weren't good. And, um, Jeff threw me a good live li lifeline and, you know, basically, uh, you know, after I threw up all the reasons why I wasn't going to do this, he just said to me, so you're telling me that you don't have an hour each month to get on the phone with me and talk about music. And I said, you got me there, you know? So, um, I, I started doing the podcast and, uh, honestly, you know, just with where my head was at, I didn't think I was going to, you know, finish it out, uh, you know, to 2021, like, you know, make it through all those episodes. So it, it means a lot that we're sitting here doing a bonus episode and that we, you know, really, you know, talk through some fun records this year and, you know, um, I, I I appreciate you. I appreciate my uh, my lovely uh, wife, um, and I appreciate our dear friend um, Matthew Wilkening. There's a lot of other 
people that I could throw out here, but uh, you guys were the holy trinity uh, that you know kind of helped Matt Wardlaw find his way through 2021. So, so I appreciate that. So there you go. Uh, you know what? It's good. I've rendered Jeff speechless. speechless so that's <laughs> I'm going to just write that down. All right, Colin, well, Colin, it's been so much fun meeting you. I love yeah. hearing these stories, the ones that made it into the episode and the ones that we uh, heard prior to recording that no one will ever get to hear. I loved all that. And I, know, <laughs> I love hearing you guys talk. It's awesome, man. I really, it's so much fun. Thanks. We'll for have you me. back, really man. Great. We'll I have you back. It. So thanks again for taking the time, man. Whatever. Hang on one second. We promised you a couple of songs from Colin Gowell to round things out. And so keeping that promise, which we don't always do, as we just discussed, here are a couple of songs from Colin. We'll start with Sad Drive. We'll wrap things up with A.M. Boy. Enjoy. It's a sad, sad drive On a sad, dark and lonely night It's a sad, sad drive When only one of us Still has hope in his eyes Wait, I'd grab to feel your touch But hope that just another drug Trying to kill It's a funny thing Cause romance It's just a touch away You can touch me With your hands Or in your letters uh-huh. As soon as you went away I remembered the things I forgot to say As soon as you went away I remembered I'm lonely I imagine you next to me It's only cause I'm lonely I envision you I can picture you And feel your breath on my neck Put them all in the past 
couldn't make it home So we pulled the car over A rest stop west of Dayton We parked in the rain, yeah And we, we put the seats back And you put your head on my lap And I listen to you breathe While the AM radio had cracked Sleeping. 